Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. Welcome back to So To Speak, the free speech podcast. I am your host, Nico Perino. And today I'm joined by two exciting guests in FIRE's DC office. They got through the gauntlet that is the security in the front front lobby. Uh, listeners will know our first guest here, Ron Collins. He's a distinguished scholar at the University of Washington School of Law. Welcome back, Ron. Glad to be here. What is this? You're like third or fourth or fifth podcast? Listen, as long as you have me, I'm always happy to be here. So. <laughs> well, I don't think I've ever put you through security like that before. Uh, no, we just came from Davis Wright Tremaine and they put us through quite a lot uh, uh, but it was exciting. <laughs> We're also joined by David Scover. He is a professor of constitutional law at Seattle University School of Law. It's good to finally meet you, David. Oh, thank you very much, Nico. The same here. So we have you both here today because you are the authors of a new book called Robotica, Speech Rights and Artificial Intelligence. Now, am I right in counting this is your seventh book together? I think it is actually our ninth book together, and because we are in the process of writing our tenth. So. Our tenth book on Lawrence Ferlinghetti and the prosecution of the Howell poem comes out in March from Roman and Littlefield, available on Amazon and fine bookstores throughout the country. That was a little bit of commercial speech, in case you didn't pick that up. <laughs> well, how did this collaboration between you two start? Oh, very long time ago. Uh, in the early 80s, uh, my school was doing a symposium on state constitutional law, and um, the law review asked me whom should we get as the, um, you know, to give the foreword uh, to our printed symposium. And, and you can't be, tell me they recommended Ron. I recommended Ron because he was the only really well-established scholar in the area at the time. And I said, I don't know if you can get Ron Collins. I don't know him personally, but try uh, because he's he's the guy. He's the one who should, who should do the keynote. And they, they asked and he uh, agreed. And so that's, uh, that's how we met. He came to my school in Seattle and then he came back the year after, to teach with with me for a year. So uh, that's how we first established our friendship. Uh, we decided to write together. We wrote a piece uh, called The Future of Liberal Legal Scholarship, and that was our first article together. And uh, it's been a very, very productive and prolific uh, writing relationship ever since. Yeah, that's to say the least. How does... How do you two approach the co-authoring process? I'm, I'm always very curious about just sort of the functional approach to doing well, this sort Well, of thing. we do it differently, I think, than most folks. First of all, we do an inordinate amount of research at the outset. We read a lot. I mean, virtually everything on the subject. So we have our research assistants and our librarians uh, help us out in terms of doing the research. Uh, and then after we read everything, typically David will prepare what we call nuggets, you know, important um, uh, thoughts and various articles, and uh, then it's all in a binder. Uh, we'll read the, through the binder, then we'll make an outline, and then I'll either visit David or he'll visit me, and literally, this is how it works. David is behind the computer. 
I'm usually standing, walking around. I may start a sentence, he can finish it, or he'll start it and I finish it. Um, and so literally word for word, paragraph for paragraph, page for page. I must say, though, there are times when I get a little worried when I'm spouting a sentence and he's not typing. Yeah, yeah um, Ron will say, David, I don't hear any keys clicking. My response is, Ron, I hear nothing worthy of clicking. <laughs> <laughs> so it may not be the most efficient system, system, but it certainly works for us. Well, it's a closer collaboration than I imagine most co-authors have. Oh, by you're, far. you're in the same room together. Yeah, by far. Most people will break a book up in chapters, and you do this chapter, I do that chapter. But the, the And our very, very first project was done that way, but... It wasn't efficient. It was, well, we, when we got together, we realized it had two different voices, and it did not read as a, as a piece. We had to do the entire thing over again. Uh, we were at his parents' home in L.A., and and we wrote had to write the entire thing over again. And from that point on, you know, we decided, no, 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 we need to be in the same room. And eventually, our minds, you know, melded, melt. Well, you know, and really work at what at really. On the one hand, um, like I said, one of us can begin a sentence, the other can finish it, and that's really how much we are in sync. Uh, on but the on the other, Lenny Bruce book, that that's like a. Over a thousand page well, book. Well, yeah. So, just, just a couple of things before we get to Lenny Bruce. But so, I think more often than not, we're in sync. Rarely have we got stuck where we just can't. Uh, you know, we have to take a break and go out for a walk or something. But we do check each other. So sometimes we'll be in the middle of an argument and uh, or discussion, I should say, and one of us will say, "You know, there's a problem with this," and we'll talk it out and stop typing, what have you, then come back. And it, it works for us. So we are really offering each other a critical perspective as we're writing the piece. And then we, uh, once it's done in draft form, we come back to it again, word for word. Usually David will read, start reading, and then I will, you know, maybe after he reads for 10 minutes, I will start reading. So we all want, not only want to know that what we're writing is good for the eye, but also good for the ear. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that, we think, improves our game. And the and, Lenny and Bruce Frank, book? Well, oh, Every book was done this way. So it doesn't matter how long it is. All they're asking really is how long did it take us? There were some books like Lenny Bruce and Mania that took years, you know, multiple visits. I, I came out, when we were writing Mania, I spent three weeks. Well, what's Mania about? Oh, Mania was the, was the story of uh, the great beat writers from... Um, well, st- really starting at, at the point at which they were doing their most creative and dynamic writing. Allen Ginsberg, Jack Kerouac, Jack, you know, those Jack, folks. Well, but just when Jack Kerouac was, was writing on the road, right? So we don't go back and talk about Jack Kerouac's early life. So it, it, was, it, was, uh, it went from that to the Howell trial, the trial in, 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 at, at which Lawrence Ferlinghetti was accused of obscenity for publishing the great Ginsburg poem Howell. And of course, that was a great First Amendment victory. So the book is pitched towards the obscenity story, but there, there had to be a lot of, of, of background given. Now for that, I, I spent three weeks in D.C. with him. I'd go back to Seattle for two weeks just to rest. And, and, and in our youth, we were able to write 17 yeah, hours a day. A day. And uh, then I'd come back for three yeah, weeks and now, then go back. Now that, we're, you know, now that we're older, you know, nine hours or 10 hours is a good day. Oh, yeah. So let's talk about this book now. 
Robotica, Speech Rights and Artificial Intelligence. It's a short one by mm-hmm. your guys' standards. Six, yeah, but a lot of thought went into it. Yeah, 63 pages, yeah, I think. Is sometimes the, the hardest books are the ones that you really um, – you. there's only – well, first of all, this is the first book that's been written on the subject of robotics and free speech. So we're entering a field where it's not really crowded. So a lot of original thought has to go into it. And we try not to be about volume. We try to be more about, you know, exhausting an idea. And we were just at, earlier today at Davis Wright Tremaine with a group of lawyers uh, kind of going back and forth about a number of discussions. And when you write a book like this – and particularly if you're the first out of the gate, you have to understand that it's really a work in progress. Um, I mean, this book, a lot of it was written a year, year and a half ago, which in technological terms is a long time. Um, but so really a lot of these arguments were just crafted out of whole cloth. They really didn't depend on an enormous amount of research. It re- required us to familiarize, familiarize ourselves with the technology, and I think that's was the really the big part of it. And, and when it comes to the First Amendment argument that I know you will want us to talk about, it also required us to think very, very hard about whether or not there was any existing First Amendment doctrine that supported our relatively novel theory. So um, in, in that respect, uh, uh, there was research. But Ron is quite right. Uh, this book is filled, every page is jam-packed with ideas. So the length of the book is not indicative of its significance. The, it, is, it is so thickly um, uh, contemplated and, and discussed that it's, it's a, a relatively slow read. And our audience should be grateful <laughs> that, that we don't, didn't have a much, much longer book for them because this, this is, is not the easiest of reads. And besides, we wanted to keep it uh, pretty much within the same parameters of Milton, John Milton's Aeropagitica or John Stuart Mill's On Liberty. Um, Which were very know, short. You know, yeah. just short. And the other thing, too, is although we're dealing with a difficult subject, we try in every one of our books uh, to write with a certain degree of clarity, to use narrative whenever we can, and to really make the sort of arguments that we're making, as difficult as they may be, as accessible to a wide range of people as possible. So we don't feel any compulsion to to write in turgid ways in order to speak uh, to the paters of the academy. Uh, so that you'll not see. Well, the book couldn't have come at a better time with the debate over 3D guns right now. Now, your book doesn't just talk about artificial intelligence. It also talks about robotics and how artificial intelligence plays into there. So what's your take on the, the 3D guns debate that's occurring right now? Well, for one thing, uh, the 3D guns, so, you know, in other words, you make available on the internet uh, codes as to how to produce a plastic gun um, that can get through, through a lot these of, 3D printers. Through the 3D printers that can get through a, a lot, if not all, security systems and what have you. What's fascinating about this controversy, <clears throat> and it just <clears throat> illustrates an important point that's in Robotica, and that is really what this case is all about, first and foremost, is the relationship between this technology, all right, that allows these guns to be made, and the doctrine of prior restraint. Doctrine of prior restraint comes into play with can the government prevent this um, uh, individual from distributing these codes and information as to how to do that. And although uh, in the short run, the First Amendment claim has lost um, 
uh, the federal judge overhearing the case has said that there's some significant First Amendment arguments that come into play. Again, I think the big takeaway point is when we have new technologies, how do those technologies change our vision of the world, change our vision of harm, change our vision of law, change our vision of our culture? It may be for the better, it may be the worse, but when you have these new technologies, this is part of what they do. Well, this isn't so new. I watched a documentary on Netflix recently about the man who wrote The Anarchist Cookbook, which is a book about how to make pipe bombs and Molotov cocktails. And that's been available on the internet since the internet was born, because the book was written in the 60s or 70s. The idea may not be new, but the execution is, all right? So there were always a limited number of people that can do that. Now there's millions of people that could have access to this information and run with it. It's not that these ideas didn't exist before, but it's now that they've been, if you will, energized uh, by the availability of the uh, internet, energized by the availability of machines that can produce these sorts of things. Well... I think there's, there's been some think pieces going around in the internet saying, well, if the government wanted to narrowly tailor its regulation of these 3D guns, then it should regulate the printing of the gun, not the distribution of the code. Precisely. And, and, and that, I think, is going to be the way eventually this is going to be taken care of. Because, um, I mean, there, there are many famous cases where, th- uh, where dangerous activity was being described and the government would try to go and censor the speech rather than to go towards the dangerous act that the speech may have been enhancing or enabling. Uh, the, the more recent case uh, is the Hitman case, uh, but in that, in, in that instance, the, uh, the publisher of the book Hitman, which was a manual for how to become a hitman, how to perform hits, right? The publisher wanted to push the First Amendment argument as far as he could. And with with the support of many book um, publishers behind him who said, we will we will finance your penalty if you are found uh, guilty. And they do that often. They and did they that with did uh, Satanic yes. Verses as well. That's correct. They came together. So they came together in this consortium to defend him. Uh, because he had that, he was enabled to make the argument that there was scienter. Now let me explain. that He was saying, I published this for with knowledge and intent to, to enable these crimes. You know, n- most publishers would never a- admit to this, and 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 essentially, he was saying, I, "I I was an accessory to the crime. I was, you know, handing this person, wanting this person to use this information in order to kill." Just it to was an, the um, intent, and that so was the intent, it. and that's what got him. That's what got so him. So two what... important points: one, it was not a prior restraint case, right. and two, um, it was a uh, damages case. By the way, a prominent person, First Amendment persona, represented the plaintiffs in that case, and that's uh, Professor now Dean uh, Rodney Smola in that case. But So, so I mean, th- that's an unusual situation, right? And, and in the context of something like the cookbook you were talking about, there was no s- such intention or admission, and, and uh, there would be much, much more First Amendment protection in a context like that. 
So let's get into the types of artificial intelligence before we talk about how we should think about those types of artificial intelligence. So you describe two sorts of intelligence, first order and second order. Uh, others have called them strong or weak intelligence or general or narrow intelligence. The first one is sort of a functional intelligence, first order intelligence. It's the idea that you write code to tell this computer or this robotic to do something, and then it executes your wishes. The other one is a more general second-order intelligence in which you write the code, and then the intelligence sort of takes on a mind of its own and can more or less think, not, not thinking as a human would, but it could potentially get there, but generate new ideas, new evaluations. I, I would say that in the first-order robotics, the robot is really seen as a direct agent of the human creator. In the second-order robotics, you have computers uh, that are, or robots that are self-learning and self-correcting. And the, the the foreseeability of what the robot might be doing will will become more uh, uh, distended. Yeah. So, what are the arguments for why, if at all, AI should be regulated? And I ask that by trying to understand what you're responding to in writing this book. Was there any impetus for it? Did you hear arguments for censorship? You spend the first part of the book going through the whole history of communications technology, more or less. So was the idea being, this is a new technology, the regulators are coming for it, we're only at the beginning stages of it, we should start thinking about these things now? So if you go back to antiquity, and we start at the time of um, Socrates, um, any, any new communications technology that has great utility... Um, inevitably will create uh, some corresponding harms. And inevitably, there will be calls for censorship. For instance? Well, for example, um, let's take the invention of the Gutenberg Press. Um, the Gutenberg Press was um, a great thing if you were Protestant, but if you were Papal Catholic, it wasn't. Um, the whole idea of starting to regulate the press and have to license uh, printing came precisely because the press was seen, the, the press, that is, I mean, the technology as a clear and present danger to certain values. Now, originally those values had to relate to religion, but inevitably they came to relate to politics as well. I mean, the reason why the First Amendment protects the technology, and I emphasize technology, not an institution. Uh, Eugene Bollock has written an incredible article in the Pennsylvania Law Review pointing out that if you're an originalist, what was really being protected was the technology, the press. And there was a reason for that. And so basically what David and I try to do going back to Socrates talking about scribality and how, you know, he was he opposed the idea of the invention of writing because he said writing uh, gets rid of face-to-face, one-on-one communication. It's a bad thing, all right? And he makes some strong arguments for that. I mean, one of the flies one of the in the in the ointment there is that had Plato not written it, we'd never know. Mm-hmm. So if you just start with the premise that whenever you have a significant new communications technology that has great utility, it's only a matter of time before the sensorial hand plays it. Because it upsets the established order. Right. Or some established order, right. yeah. But your question went to the issue of, you know, are, are there, because we're at the beginning and there's not a lot of litigation, are there really people out there who are arguing that the First Amendment shouldn't cover 
uh, robotic expression Yeah, because we had the code and, of speech and, debate in the, right. in the 90s and early 2000s. Right. And the answer to that is yes. <laughs> uh, three fine examples of uh, academics, legal academics, who are arguing that there should be no First Amendment coverage whatsoever for robotic expression because robots are not human and they don't have human intentions. Uh, I would name uh, first and foremost Tim Wu, who is a Columbia University law, uh, law school professor. But along with him are um, Oren um, Braca, who is at the University of Texas Law School, and Frank Pasquale at the University of Maryland Law School. All three have written articles, uh, newspaper op-ed pieces, and advised the government as well as to their Unlimited power to regulate robotic expression because robots aren't humans and they do not get First Amendment protection for their speech. So these arguments are out there. Uh, they and and I I believe they're going to be used. There's no question about it. But you're right. We are at the beginning of the of, of this field of of robotic agents who are expressing ideas expressing speech that may be considered threatening and whether or not uh, the, the, the government decides to regulate it in the future uh, at, at, at any, you know, f you know in, in, in any significant way is yet to be seen. So let's, let's make this tangible. I believe there was a court decision where the judge said, and this might have been a Supreme Court decision, I can't remember, where the ruling said, you know, a recipe doesn't lose its protection because an oven is required to make the good, the baked good. And music doesn't lose its protection. Music on a sheet of paper doesn't lose its protection because a guitar is required to bring that music to life. Would Tim Wu and the others get on board with that? Do you think? Well, let me... Because I have way. a hard time in my mind drawing a distinction between that and saying, I wrote, wrote this code, but because a computer is required to bring it to life... It therefore shouldn't have the protection. Well, uh, but but you have to admit that there is that the cookbook can't really change its recipe. There's no independent there's no independent process that the cook by which the cookbook alters itself. Well, not right? same with same with artificial intelligence. At least first order artificial intelligence. First order uh, artificial intelligence is is much more limited. But but second order, it'll be another day, right? So this would be, second order would be a, a, an electronic cookbook realizing, oh my God, this really should be only one teaspoon of sugar, not two, you know, and then changing itself, okay? that that That's the second order. Well, I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, but let's say that the AI decides that this shouldn't just be one teaspoon of sugar. It should also be like one teaspoon of sugar plus one teaspoon of name your, date, <laughs> name your date rape drug, then who, right. would be, who would be liable there? So, for, so first of all, let's just keep in mind that um, utility is a really important um, aspect uh, or a, a focal point of our discussion. So let's just so we're clear for your audience. The first question is when you talk about robotic expression – is it even covered under the First Amendment, all right? Not is it protected, but is it covered? Is it speech within the meaning of the First Amendment? And the main portion of our argument, speaking to the critics that David has mentioned, is to establish a case that it is covered by the First Amendment. That, that really is where a lot of the heavy lifting is. 
The next question is, is if it's covered, how do we determine if it's protected or not, all right? And in that regard, utility is extremely important. And giving, go ahead. But before we get there, when you say covered, you mean, do you need to bring a First Amendment analysis to bear on the question? Right. right. So for right. example, um, uh, if I were to punch somebody in the face, um, that's not even speech within the meaning of the First Amendment. If I was to run somebody over with my car, that's not even speech within the meaning, right? We don't get to the question of whether or not it's protected because it doesn't even come within the ambit of the First Amendment gotcha. to begin with. Okay. So having established uh, as best we can the argument for that and more to be said about that in a moment, then the next question is how do we determine whether something is protected? And at least uh, for many uh, uh, decades, both the courts and academics have developed various theories to determine when speech is protected, really high-minded theories, self-realization, self-governance, uh, democratic uh, rule, um, marketplace, marketplace of, ideas. of ideas, the checking function, what have you. But what we've witnessed in First Amendment law over the decades is that these various doctrines, when they've applied uh, to modern situations, have taken on a very extended, extended and attenuated, um, if you will, uh, portrayal. And that in many respects, what's going on is a form of hypocrisy. Um, it may be that pornography does many things, but to say that it adds to democratic government is a bit of a stretch. So when we wrote this book, we didn't want to take some high-minded ideal and stretch to the breaking point in order to reach our um, our arguments, in order to address our arguments. We thought it better to take a realist approach, and that is to say, what is really driving the idea that we would even protect this to begin with? And that is utility. And in very short form, if you think about the printing press, if you think about telephone, if you think about television, if you think about the internet, if you think about cell phones and what have you, the utility is so great that often that utility changes our notion of harm, changes our notion of value. I mean, just think about how Generation Z people think about privacy when it comes to social media and how people over 50 think of it. It's radically different. So we think that, at least for a starting point, the norm is utility, all right? That, so what we do is you balance the utility of the value received against the harm that it creates. The greater the utility, all right, the greater the harm is going to be. The greater the harm, the greater the utility is going to be. And so often that's very contextual. But that's just a very general approach. David? Yeah. I, I mean, in 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 many respects, uh, and, and, and Ron is right, to, to, to get to our argument, of First Amendment coverage, we have to we have to talk about something entirely different than from utility, because utility is only a norm that we use for protection for protection for the question of protection. But so that your audience understands, there is no need to go to the, the question of protection if the government can regulate something because the First Amendment doesn't cover it at all. And so, for us, we. Our first and foremost objective in writing this book was to contest the 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 arguments of people like like Wu and Pasquale, um, which was you know which are well, you are unconstrained in your regulation of robotic expression, government because uh, robots aren't human, 
Robots don't have human intentions. Therefore, the First Amendment doesn't apply at all. So we, our, our main focus is to address that argument. Well, James Gimmel, uh, Grimmelman, in his criticism of you said, your argument more or less would result in speech eating the world. And, and, we, and, and we say not at all. Not at all. And the example he provides is he says, well, you know, turning on, there's turning on a light bulb and then there's Morse code. Both requires a message to be sent from the, the human to the, the piece of robotic or machinery. But one has an expressive intent. The other one is purely functional. And your response is? Well, would it make one hoots difference to Grimmelman's argument if a robot had been standing in, in Old North Church, sending signals about the, uh, about the British, you know, coming. Would we have cared? No, not at all. But that question rests on whether it's a human or a robot sending the message. Well, that's right. But, but his, his point about a light bulb and, and light being used as a Morse code is something we, we fully accept. A light bulb by itself is not considered speech. But when I use the light bulb to send the signal, or in, in this case, it was, I mean, in the case of, of Paul Revere or whatever it was, right? It was the, the lantern. When I use the lantern to send the signal that the British are coming, that, that instrument is a medium of communication. And no one would say it's not. So light it, uh, can be used as can a medium. Can be used as a communication so you, device. So you would grant him this, that the functional just turning on a light is ha, is not even covered by the First Amendment, uh, much less protected. Right, because most of us would never in, in a million years think of that as expression. But, I mean, but, what is being expressed? But, you know, the other thing is uh, what the, what David's comment gets us to think about is think how long it took the First Amendment to get to symbolic speech, Right. I mean, that's essentially what you're talking about. In other words, we communicate by ways other than mere words, all right? And that's what the whole evolution of symbolic speech is, is about. So, um, Right, that, that a medium, right, the light, the flashing light, is used instead of, instead of the human voice screaming, the British are coming. So if I'm wanting to start my car, for example, and there's... There's communication between the uh, the button I press on my new fancy high tech car and the engine that lets it go. That's not protected. It's not even covered because there's no message being communicated. Uh, so How? yes, yes, no. So uh, no, that wouldn't be speech. But if you're talking to Siri in your car, all right, Siri meaning the uh, Apple uh, robotic lady that communicates with us, um, that well could be covered. Uh, under the uh, under the uh, First Amendment, but you're not willing to say definitively that it would be protected. No, 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 no. Those no, are it's different. Only about cover. Those are different questions. Something may well be covered, but not protected. Right. See, I'm having a hard time distinguishing this because if I tell Siri to turn on a light versus flicking it with my finger myself, the only difference is that I used my voice but to do it. Let me give you an example. Let me okay. Just, so let's turn the clock back a hundred years. All right. So let's say I'm a person of means and I have a butler and I say, will you go over and uh, light that candle? Question, when I ask the butler to do that, is that speech within the meaning of the First Amendment? 
Not is it protected, but is it speech? So I asked the butler. In its purest sense, yes, of course. Yes, well, so. What what if your butler today is a robot and you say, you know, please turn turn on or light that candle. If If the robot fulfills your desire, then the robot is your butler. I mean, and this is why I think your book is so important because it it forces us to ask why we have free speech protection under the First Amendment in the first place. Is it for self-actualization? Is it to uh, because it's useful? There's a utility to it. Is it because it produces knowledge? Is it because it supercharges the democratic well, process? Well, I mean, I think the answer is yes, 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 yes. But because all of those could come to play. We are never saying that utility is a norm that, that exists, is, that, it, that exists isolated. alone, isolated from others. It's just that many of the traditional First Amendment norms are essentially too highly elevated to really cover the vast majority of what we would consider functional expression. So we have to recognize that it's, that when you're talking to Siri and asking her a question and she gives something back, this isn't for purposes of self-governance. This isn't, this isn't necessarily for purposes of the marketplace of ideas. You know, it's, it's functional. What you needed to know was how do I, what's the address of, you know, of fires, organiz, uh, fires offices, offices in Washington, D.C.? It's funny you say this because we had Paul Sherman uh, who is a attorney at the Institute for Justice on a podcast when we discussed Brett Kavanaugh's nomination and some of the, the Supreme Court cases last term. And he said, you know, the question before the court right now isn't really between, uh, you know, about offensive speech like it might have been or political speech like it might have been decades ago. It's now really how covered is effective speech? And he's talking about commercial speech cases. He's talking about uh, campaign finance cases. He's talking about um, occupational speech cases. When speech is effective, do, can can it achieve uh, First Amendment protection? Well, His argument de- is, of course. Well, it depends on what it's effective at. If it's effective at perpetuating fraud uh, or uh, perpetuating other types of crimes, no. Good point. But yeah. I think I think what's implicit in your question. And um, by the way, this book is just day one, right? I mean, there's so much on the table. And it's going to take us forever to get through the questions that are asked. But one of the things, as we communicate, and I think this was implicit in Professor Grimmelman's questions. Unfortunately, he, he didn't really tease them out enough. But I think what's, what robotics does is it gets us to revisit the speech conduct dis- distinction. You know, as we communicate more and more with data, with our voice, with various uh, bot agents, all right, and we do communicate to them, right, then that dichotomy, that traditional dichotomy, if you will, the difference between me turning on a light and me asking my butler to turn it on or me asking a bot to turn it on, that, that becomes a little fuzzier. And this is what the new technologies do. They take our old paradigms and they get, in a sense, they turn them inside out and get us to think anew about them. Let me just... Uh um, jumpstart, I think what is implicit in, in m- most of what we've talked about, but not really expressed so far. And, and that is what is, what, what is one of the major purposes of this book? The, one of the major purposes of this book in addressing the naysayers like Tim Wu and, and uh, uh, Frank Pasquale is 
a theory of the First Amendment that does not require us to, to give human agency in any way to the robot or to, or, or to believe that the robot has any human intentions. Because what they are doing, right, what the naysayers are doing is saying, First Amendment coverage is limited to humans. And unless you are a human, your expression doesn't even come within the aegis of the First Amendment. Our response is no. We give what we call an intentionalist free speech theory. And there, there are several important points to understanding what, we, what, what this intentionalist free speech theory is about. First of all, it is designed particularly to avoid these questions. The fact that the robot is not human is irrelevant. The fact that the, hum, that the robot has no human intentions is irrelevant. Then what we really are doing is, is resting or situating the meaning of speech in the First Amendment in the experience of the receiver. Now, and you rest on reader response criticism from from literary criticism back in the seventies, sixties, uh, and seventies. That's right. The First Amendment people have, except for us, have never really reflected on this uh, on this great debate that was happening among literary critics back back then in the sixties and seventies. They were debating this very idea. Um, some of them were saying, no, meaning is in the text. It lies in the text, and you have to unlock the text, and then, boom, the meaning will pop out. And that's the, where the value lies. That's where the value lies, okay. in the text. The, the reader response people were saying, no, that's ridiculous. Meaning is situated in the mind of the receiver. The, it, it is the reader. It is the listener of music, the reader of books, who in his or her mind is making meaning. And so the significance is in the reader or, or the receiver's response to the stimulus of the text. Now, we adopt this latter view. And part of the reason we do is because we've seen that although the court is not, the Supreme Court has never explicitly made this connection, not explicitly, but much of modern First Amendment doctrine is really based on reader response value. Let me just mention three areas quickly. Uh, the obscenity doctrine. If you look at the definition of obscenity in Miller versus California, every single one of the prongs is about the response of the reader or the viewer of the obscenity. Particularly, I mean, consider the th that that. Uh, for pornography to be protected, it must have some substantial political, uh, artistic, literary, or scientific value. Well, value to whom? They're not talking about to the pornographer. They're talking about to the observer, to the reader, to the viewer of pornography. So that criterion is entirely yeah. reader response. Of course it has value to the creator. Well, Otherwise, monetary, why do it? Yeah. Monetary value. If but, nothing else. But, but if nothing else. But that's not what they're resting on. They're looking at the value to the receiver. Okay, obscenity. Obscenity. Mm -hmm. Commercial speech. In the 1976 case of Virginia Pharmacy, the Supreme Court explicitly found that the reason for protecting commercial advertising was that the 
information would be valuable to the consumer who needs to make wise economic decisions in the marketplace. Again, reader response or receiver theory of value. Uh, the most recent, I think, and very telling case is, um, is the Brown versus Merchant Entertainment case, which involved the California's attempt to uh, proscribe violent video games. When the Supreme Court upheld the First Amendment defense of, the, of, of um, Brown merchants, its argument was that the, the value to the gamer is what, you know, entertainment value to the gamer is what was being protected. And in that particular case, they, they got the closest to actually acknowledging this literary criticism link because... Because in writing his opinion for the majority, Scalia cites to a decision by Posner who talks about literary experience. Yeah, of course the, he does. That was yeah. the Kendrick case. Yeah, the Kendrick case. And, and, and he's talking about the literary experience and the imagination of the reader creating meaning and value in uh, speech value in his mind. Well, <laughs> I mean... So he's associating that with what the gamer does when the gamer is playing these, these uh, violent video games. So the, our, our point is that this theory is, 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 although we are the first to really propound it explicitly this way as a theory for First Amendment coverage, I don't know anyone else who's done this before us, is still grounded very, very well in, in you know, well, well grounded in existing First Amendment doctrine. So, so how would you approach then a case like Morris v. Frederick, Bong hits for Jesus case, where the justice, uh, who was it, Scalia, asked, "What was the purpose in sending this message?" And I think his decision more or less relied on the question, that question asked, and the response that they didn't really have a purpose. In, in holding up the Bong no, Hits I mean, for Jesus. That, that Bong Hits for Jesus case is a good example of, of the court taking liberties. Um, you know, from all we know from the record, and I think the dissents were right on base, this, these kids were just being comical, nonsensical, what have you. Uh, to say that they were somehow uh, aiding and abetting in um, the, you know, urging people to use uh, pot is, is, uh, is a bit of a stretch. And this is what you see in a lot of uh, First Amendment jurisprudence, uh, either to deny a right or to affirm a right. The question of what is the purpose of this expression? Yes, and I think um, what we're what we're trying to do is, look, no theory is perfect. You know, there's always some difficulties, uh, you know, on the border. And as you begin to learn more and more about the technologies, your view of the law changes. And that's why I said I can't emphasize enough. This is the first day, not the the last day in terms of how we come to think uh, about these issues. But if you say at the outset that algorithmic uh, produced stories for Associated Press having to do with financial matters and having to do with sports are not covered under the First Amendment, if you say that uh, robotic uh, music, jazz music, or classical music at the outset isn't even covered by the First Amendment, if at the outset you say that robotically produced art, all of which, these things are, by the way, happening already in our day, that that's just categorically not even within the meaning of the First Amendment, 
I think you lose a lot. And what we're trying to do is come with come up with some way of thinking anew as to why such forms of expression and, and others uh, might, first of all, be within the ambit of the First Amendment, and then second of all, why and under what circumstances might they be protected? Yeah, so first order artificial intelligence. It's, I, I think you could even tie Tim Wu's theory into believing that that is protected because it is a human who is pushing the first domino. Well, the, I think for them, the agency is too attenuated. Uh, and the thing is, is that even if we go back to Socrates, Socrates was saying that writing, all right, is not speech, right? Because it's not alive. It's not human to human. It's not person to person. It's not face to face. This is an old argument, if you will, with a new face. Um, so the thing is, is, of course, at some point, and this brings us from coverage to protection, at some point, there has to be some agency or some utility. I should say better, better word would be utility. Because if there's no utility... There's no need to create this in the first place. There's right? no value for right. which the right is protecting. Right. For, for Well, there would be no incentive for creation. I mean, who, who is going to produce um, a, 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 a robot that is of no use to anyone? I mean— why, I mean, why, man, why, man, man. We, we, we wouldn't. Well, you, you might create a robot that walks back and forth just to test the technology, for example. Well, sure. But then, but there, there, then there there's is a the, but, there's yeah, not, the, but, but, but that's not going to be regulated. The government's not going to regulate it because it's not going to harm anything. It's not going to do right? anything. It's not going to do anything. The, 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 you have to remember that it's utility that drives usage. When, it, when, when a new creation is 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 shared by five people. You're not gonna. You're not gonna get. It's, it's also the, the utility that demonstrates the futility of regulation. Oftentimes, I think about Uber. Uber came into these markets, which had heavily heavily regu- regulated taxis for decades, and blew it wide open blew by it demonstrating right its utility. And by the time the government started to catch up to this new technology, they were too late. People fell in love with it. They couldn't do it without immense blowback. And way, you talk about this with um, people talking on their cell phones, and now you have um, wireless technologies. Right. And, and, and the thing is, is that the, what's also interesting about the new technologies, which really kind of changes the function of um, of, of censorship or even the need for censorship, and that is the technological fix, that if a new technology does indeed create harms, all right, such that it wouldn't be protected, the question is, is there an alternative technological fix? And if there is, then, you know, problem cured, right? The, the need for censorship, um, really at least censorship of any lasting moment, uh, 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 is no longer and that, and like I said, you talk about the problem with people talking on their cell phones or looking at their cell phones in cars, and it creates a higher risk for accidents. But you said, as a result of that, you got hands-free technologies. That's for example, right. I, and and that was far more effective than any. Uh, any law that was passed. I mean, how <laughs> then many police people? officers watching cars right. come by? Right. I I mean, there were many articles written on the fact that drivers were blatantly uh, violating no, no, no cell phone uh, laws while driving. So, so the real fix was a technological one, not, not governmental regulation. I want to talk about general or second-order intelligence right now. Ron, how much time do you have? I think we have 15 minutes. Okay. This is or, where I uh, think— Excuse me, 10. 
10, this is where I think the real problems come up. Right. Because, so let me just posit a few things. But also the, the, the real benefits. Yeah, and all the interestingness for us who care about the First <laughs> Amendment. So we talked a little bit about creating an artificial intelligence that might tweak your recipe to make it better. Uh, or might tweak the recipe because it has g- generated an intelligence that resulted in it hating you, for example, and then it poisons you. Mm-hmm. So you have, you have that one possibility where if you tell an intelligence to do something, it might come up with really weird ways to implement it. For example, I listened to a podcast with Sam Harris where he talks about how if you tell an artificial intelligence to cure cancer – one thing it might be might do is kill all the humans because that's one way to kill the cancer. You can't figure out all the various permutations for how the uh, the the goal might be met. And then you have the issue with Microsoft's Twitter experiment with Tay, which I'm sure you're familiar yes, with. And certainly. I think Ron ran off to the restroom here. He'll be back in a moment. They created this technology on Twitter, this artificial intelligence, which was sort of supposed to respond and become like other users on Twitter. And after, I I think within 24 hours, it started denying the Holocaust, making racial and racist statements, and they had to take it down. So how do we deal with technologies like that and the communicative uh, consequences of it? Well, part of, part of the problem with, with all of these examples is the fact that we're at a very, very early stage of robotic development still. And um, certainly the creators of uh, robotic programs have a lot to learn (laughs) from these kinds of experiments. but but I but the risks of messing but, up are huge and but can the risks, be huge. The risks, yes, and 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 frankly, and so waiting to regulate it can be too late. I think your critics would argue. Well, except the the problem is by I mean by by that measure, right? It, the television could have been shut down because there were arguments about the vast wasteland that was created by the television and how reading wouldn't be promoted when people were viewing television. But and, none of those could result in the deaths of the human no, no. race, for example. Oh, well, except people thought pe- people thought that the minds of our youths would be polluted by the television. Uh, there were arguments made by, by religious people that, that you know, uh, Elvis Presley music should be crushed because it was satanic in creating, you know, uh, sexual urges in, 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 in its listeners. I mean, you can see these kinds of sensorial arguments go back, as Ron has said earlier, you know, to 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 the very to, to the very beginning of the creation of new communications technologies. So we we're, we're we're always going to have these censorship arguments made. The real question, right, is when if we can accept the reception theory that that we're giving the intentionalist free speech theory for coverage, then how are we going to at on an ad hoc basis, because it's going to be contextualized, how are we going to determine when the government is empowered to regulate a a technological use? It's usually not the technology itself at that point, but the the fact that the technology has been used to do something that the government considers to be illegal. Look, 
If you have a robot. What if your intention is to not do something illegal, but the intelligence takes on a mind of its own, as I said, by you telling well, it to cure well, cancer and it kills all humans because that cures cancer? Look, just like a human being is not entitled to defame or a human being is not entitled fraud. To, to commit fraud, robots are not going to be entitled to do it either. So, so – if you are talking about a category... Well, the robots won't be responsible for it. I'm assuming it's the human who created the code that right. made and, way and, for and the artificial the intelligence. Question, yeah, and the question is, could they have availed themselves of some technological fix? But, you know, as we talk about these things, Nico, just keep this in mind, that um, if you have a technology that increases a million-fold the number of people you can reach, if you have a technology that decreases, you know, a thousand times um, the length of time that it would take to deliver a message. Or, it, or I the, cost, say, the yeah, cost. Yeah, or the cost. So mm-hmm. speed is accelerated, volume is accelerated, costs are diminished, all right? These are what sorts of things new technologies do. That's their utility. But, of course, there's a possibility for a corresponding harm, all right? So if you just start with that, it may be that it takes a while to ferret out what the harms may be. The harms may be, you know, bots uh, sending all sorts of fake messages to Facebook, all right? That could be the sort of things they do. Um, But what we're not denying that when you have accelerated um, – media that accelerates the number of people that receive the message, accelerates uh, the time that it takes to produce the message, it also accelerates the possibility for harm. We don't deny that. Um, but that's where our utility argument balanced against and, and harm you, comes in. But you talk about in your book about how the Supreme Court hasn't countenanced the harm argument very much in recent years. Not impl- impl- We think it's implicit in virtually everything they do, uh, but not, not explicit. So uh, we didn't. Nor have they embraced Where content discrimination. Nor, is nor, nor have they embraced our utility argument um, uh, as a norm. Right? We say all the high values are great, and and they may work in tandem. But what's really driving this is a certain realism. And what we try to do is bring to First Amendment jurisprudence the kind of realism that was brought in the 30s and the 40s to commercial law jurisprudence by the legal realists who said that, you know, you have to look at the world in its context, not at abstract doctrines. So if you're removing the intention from the analysis, how then do you account for unprotected speech, speech created by an intelligence that results in a true threat or defamation or incitement? Who is is at fault there if there is – if the – person who created the thing, if their intent doesn't really matter. Well, well their that, intent that, doesn't matter for purposes of, of whether— the First Amendment. Okay. You have to make a distinction between First Amendment defenses, which is what we're talking about, okay. and the establishment of a crime. Intention is always going to matter for determining whether there is the existence of a crime. Intention is always going to matter if it's, if it's, if it's you know, uh, the existence of a tort— Right now, will these things, will will these doctrines, these legal categories, change over time in order to accommodate the second order robotics? That's what your question is. First order, we don't have any issue. Yeah, I because, don't have any issue. No, because the agent, the the you know, 
a principle. It's closer is, to the principle. Right. And the principal is always held responsible for the agent's intent. So there's not really a question of who's going to be liable in those situations. But if you get a more attenuated relationship between the creator and the robot, it very well may be that no longer will negligence or intention matter for the creation of a tort. It could be that if the, the um, robot creates some tortious speech. It's inherently dangerous. That's inherently dangerous. That strict liability will be applied and there will be an insurance scheme that will be legislatively required for the, uh, for the purchase and the implementation of any robot, robot. Right? So one could see that happening. This is a very expansive view of the First Amendment. Would you admit that? And what it yeah, protects just, and covers? Just, just as the technology is the very, very yeah. I mean, now you have an idea what it would have been like to live in the age of the Gutenberg uh, press. Well, this is what I have a hard time coming to terms with because part of me wants to say this time is different, but I'm sure everyone in every era has said this Absolutely. time is different. The Catholic Church said we have to shut these printing presses down because. Either, either they're going to feed the Protestant view that that um, that people should be able to in, to mediate directly to God and not through the priest, or these printing presses are going to give rise to more French pornographic novels, or in, this, yeah. this will be and, seditious. And remember, it wasn't until the 1950s, the 1950s, that movies were considered within the ambit well, of the I'm First Amendment. Amendment. Yeah. But, so I, I mean, the printing press was considered an evil by the establishment because they saw the, the possibility for seditious speech, right? Well... I know, do we have two more minutes? I can give you one. Okay. You get outflanked by Jane Bambauer and in in the criticisms that she has. She said you guys don't go far enough. What do you make of that? You know, like I said, it's still early in the day. Our minds are still open. Um, you know, it may be that um, a year and a half from now, uh, when we revisit this, uh, we have some new takes on things and that Jane's ideas inform that. Uh, you know, we're, we're open. We're, we're not categorical, you know, canonical in, in, the, in, in, the, in that regard. By the way, I will say this. When our theory seems so extreme to the naysayers, hers is like, you know, it's well, impossible. Well, hers rests on the idea that you also need to protect thinking right. and discovery, which is, you didn't go over there, and we don't have time to go over that in the rest of this podcast. I want to thank you both so much for coming to Fires DC offices thank, today. Well, thanks thank so much you. for having us. <laughs> that was Ron Collins and David Scover, and their book is Robotica, Speech, Rights, and Artificial Intelligence. It's available wherever fine books are sold. This podcast is hosted, produced, and recorded by me, Nico Perino, and edited by Aaron Reese. To learn more about So To Speak, you can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash free speech talk or like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash so to speak podcast. You can also email us feedback at so to speak at the fire.org. And if you enjoyed this episode, leave me a review on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts. As I say every week, reviews help us attract new listeners to the show. And until next time, thanks for listening.